following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. All right, go ahead and grab your Bibles and find the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Hope you'll keep your Bibles open in front of you as we teach this, our last message in our series, Worthy of His Calling. I've enjoyed our study together through this beautiful book, and I hope you have too. And if you want to go back and listen to any of the other chapters or verses, uh, you can go to our, our website, welfordchurch.org, and click on the Watch and Listen tab. You can find video, audio of all the Wednesday night services uh, right there for you to view or listen. Note verse 13 of our text says, Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not let the idlers, those who are lazy, we learned about last week, discourage you, but you stick to your job, your responsibilities. Be diligent and persevere. Do not slack off no matter what others do. You be a dynamic example for the Lord. When other leaders are falling away or other Christians, you take responsibility for where God has called you to serve and where God has called you to proclaim his name. Sometimes it's easy to grow weary in serving and giving and sharing and caring. And at the end of Paul's teaching here concerning the second coming of Christ, the rapture of the church, the rise of the Antichrist, and the establishment of God's kingdom here on earth, the Holy Spirit directs him to give the Thessalonians and us, because we're able to read it tonight, it's been preserved down through the ages, some brief encouragement with some long-term implications. Now, why were the Thessalonians not to be weary in doing good? And why are we not to grow weary in doing good? I believe Numbers 7 gives us the answer. You don't have to go there in your Bibles. But if you go to Numbers 7 at that, cha- uh, at that chapter, you will see that the Lord lists in detail, paragraph after paragraph, a recording of the specific gifts and sacrifices brought to the temple. Let me read just a portion, okay? It came to pass on the day that Moses had fully set up the tabernacle and had anointed it that the princes of Israel, heads of the house of their fathers, who were princes over the tribes, brought their offerings before the Lord. And he that offered his offering on the first day with Nation, the son of Amminadab of the tribe of Judah. And his offering was one silver charger, the weight thereof was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary, Both of them were full of flour mingled with oil for a meat offering. He gives some other items there. Then he says, on the second day, Nathaniel, the son of Zuar, prince of Issachar, did offer. And he goes on to list all that was brought into the temple. All that was brought as a sacrifice or as an offering. And the list just goes on and on and on. Now, the longest chapter in the Bible is well known as Psalm 119. And if you go to that book, in that chapter, you'll see the Word of God is described as a teacher, a comforter, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And it extols the power and beauty of the Scriptures in an amazing way. And and you you read Psalm 119, even though it's so long, you you can see, well, I can see why God includes this and and all these details because it's just a, a, a perfect description of the Word of God. In contrast, number seven is actually the second longest chapter in the Bible. It seems redundant at times at first reading. 
Uh, if the Bible is God's instruction manual for how to live, why does he seemingly go on and on, paragraph after paragraph, describing in detail the specific gifts brought into the temple? Couldn't the Lord have just summed up that part by saying, well, the princes came and they gave pretty much the same offerings and the same sacrifices and the same gifts and then used the other space for maybe something what seemed like would be more important, like I talk about marriage or having financial peace or, or living holy lives. Why does he lift, list offerings in detail, paragraph after paragraph? I think the author of Hebrews provides the answer. Look at what he says. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. I think it's like God is saying, I delight in individuals who, who bring me sacrifices, who bring me offerings, who serve me, who, who work for me, down to the smallest detail. It doesn't, doesn't bother me a bit to take space in my word to record what each man brought. To us, it might seem repetitive or redundant, but to him, it's delightful and important. Something he can remember. Consequently, remember... Whatever you give in the name of the Lord will not be forgotten. Nobody else may ever see what you do for the Lord or give for the Lord or the sacrifices you made of of your time and your talents and your energy and your money, but God sees. In fact, the Bible tells us God sees in secret but will reward openly, Matthew 6, 4. So if you're giving, loving, sharing without any recognition here, just know that the Lord is delighting in that. And the Lord is actually recording your labor of love for eternity. And he will always remember your good work. Even if it's nothing but giving a cold cup of water to a small child. Matthew 10, 42. So don't grow weary in doing good. When we meet the Lord in the next life and and he opens the books to determine what rewards he's going to lavish upon us, I think our hearts are going to leap for joy. When we are rewarded for works we didn't think really meant anything. They seem so trivial here. But because they were done in the name of Jesus and because they were done to somebody who needed help at the time who couldn't help themselves, then God is going to reward that. And I know sometimes it's, it's hard. And in this admonition, do not grow weary. It, it's difficult to follow because we do grow weary. And we wonder, you know, is, is it all worth it sometimes? But think of it like this. All year long, we give financially contributions to different groups. We help with uh, projects here or there. We donate to nonprofit ministries. We give our tithes and our offerings here at the church to support the missions and ministries of of Welfare Baptist Church. And and sometimes, I know when you're writing your tithe, just like we do, you think, ooh, this hurts. (laughs) Maybe you have an unexpected bill come in for a car repair, maybe a home repair, or maybe an educational need for one of your children, or maybe a medical uh, bill comes in, and and sometimes it hurts to give. But you know what? When April 15th rolls around, And you're able to file your taxes and you get actually uh, a benefit from having given to ministries and given your tithes and given your offerings. You think, oh, I'm glad that I I gave. (laughs) I'm glad I shared with this ministry or that ministry or the church or whatever it is. Because you see how your donations positively impact your tax return. Right now, we might be struggling sometimes or growing weary and doing good. But oh, 
when we get to heaven, it's going to be April 15th. <laughs> and we're going to be able to say, wow, Lord, I, I can't believe the rewards I'm receiving simply because of the little acts of kindness I did in the name of Jesus. I only wish I could have done more. So because of that, make sure you're investing in eternity with your time, money, abilities, and energy. Because God remembers and delights in everything we do for his glory and he rewards in due season. Paul's emphasis is on the message of God. His confidence is in uh, the word of God. What does he pray to be glorified? God's message. Thus God himself is to be honored, magnified, and praised. So we glorify the word of God when we have a part to play in it taking hold in somebody's life that we've shared with. And so we faithfully teach the Word of God and pray that the Lord will bring men and women, boys and girls, into His family through His Word. In fact, it's critical that we pray for God to use the teaching of His Word to draw people to Himself. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws me to Him and I will raise Him up on the last day, John 6, 44. So everything we do is in vain if we are not allowing and, and using that to draw people to the Father. Now Paul is not serving and sharing and caring and loving with confidence in his own ability. His trust is in the power of the Word and the power of the living God. And he wants to see God's Word preached in its fullness until God receives the glory due his name. It's easy for us to forget when we come in here on Wednesday night or we tune in live on one of our our streams, it's easy to forget we're in a spiritual warfare. You're coming in here tonight and singing these praises to God and hearing Mike read the scripture and hearing this word proclaimed. Listen, it's a warfare. It's a spiritual warfare. Let's not forget that. All the powers of hell are arrayed against us tonight because Satan and his band of demons would like nothing better than to thwart what we're doing tonight. Honoring God, singing to him, praising him, hearing his word proclaimed. When you're involved in the kingdom of God, it's a fight. And you can't win it on your, on your own. You can't win it in your own strength with your own weapons. So Paul asked for prayer. Paul tells him, I can't do this alone. I need prayers. It's a privilege to serve the Lord, but I, I need people coming alongside of me. And it's interesting that Paul doesn't say he wants the Lord to even deliver him. His concern is for the, the flock. His concern is for the Thessalonians. He speaks of what the Lord will do for them, not what the Lord will do for him. And the faithfulness of the Lord means that his people will find mercy in turning to him. While the world around you is falling away, you stand firm. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. In chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, Apostle Paul deals with people who had lots of time on their hand. Remember when we looked at that and we talked about people, if you don't work, you don't eat. You know, people who are idle, people who are lazy, people who are able to work, but they choose not to work and they live off others. And he deals with those kind of people who have time on their hands. They turned into busybodies. Remember that? Or gossipers. 
And they, they misinterpreted that the Lord is coming soon and, and they tried to encourage people in the wrong way. J. Vernon McGee once said this, I've been simply amazed at some intelligent people who have sat in church, heard the gospel, rejected it, and then tuned and turned to the wildest cult imaginable. They'll follow some individual who's an absolute phony, not giving out the word of God at all. Why? Because God says that's the way it is. When people reject the truth... They will believe a lie, end quote. We can expect more and more people to fall away as the last days come. Because really, you think about it, a lot of American churches have abandoned the the biblical model of what it means to be a church member. They've abandoned church discipline out of fear. They don't take sin seriously. Or they show no depth of self-sacrifice and showing love to one another. Or they desire to avoid conflicts or turmoil. Or they just don't want to have the stigma of being labeled, well, you're legalistic or you're fundamental. But the real issue in our day is simply because the person who is disorderly has no commitment to the body of Christ and will move on and join another congregation and continue to act out sinfully in misbehavior, As a result, what happens is the church is harmed. So instead of confessing sin and repenting, we get mad with the messenger if we don't like what uh, the messenger is saying from God that God places on his heart. Sometimes people pitch a temper tantrum and they quickly move on to another church because they don't like what's being preached at this church. They want to go to a church that makes them feel comfortable. They want to go to a church that doesn't guilt them in any way. They're they're like, don't preach about my sins. (laughs) You can preach about other people's sins, but don't start stepping on my toes. I won't come back. I want to be fed with one-minute sermons and and not deep doctrines. Paul says we're to discipline the idler. We're We're to discipline the disorderly. He says right here, in fact, have nothing to do with them. Not as an enemy, but as a brother. Because you see, everybody has a conscience, that little voice inside that we're intended to listen to, especially as believers, we have the Holy Spirit who uses our conscience to convict us. But when people are convicted and they don't repent of that conviction or of that sin that they're being convicted of, then they're just going to continue down the wrong path. The discipline is, is to be done to bring them back into the fold. The importance of discipline is seen in the exact words of Paul. Notice he says, verse 14, take note of that person. That is, recognize it, confront them in a loving way, warn them, admonish them, let them experience shame in a way that will bring them to Christ. If I'm willing to come along someone in in love and humility, then I gain a right to point out maybe some areas of their life that they need to get right with the Lord. That's because they really are brothers and sisters in Christ, in the body. So we don't grow impatient. We don't grow weary and well-doing. We just uh, deal with it. We don't hope the problem will go away. We confront it. But it's rare today in our American churches for Christians to have that kind of commitment to the body of Christ. Today, church members would just as soon avoid disruption or discipline or correction or any responsibility they have And in most cases, the body would just as soon rather see them leave than having to deal with it. If you let Satan keep you in yesterday, then he will rob you of tomorrow. Look at verses uh, 16 and 17 to begin with. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. 
The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. You can't experience the joy of peace Paul is writing about here if you're still bothered and caught up in the past mistakes of yesterday. So Paul closes saying, here's my signature. This letter is is not forged. It's the real deal. Grace be with you all. He closes by saying, listen to verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So he actually ends the letter the same way we looked at him beginning the letter in chapter 1. And that is with grace. Remember, both of these letters, uh, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, are filled with appreciation and thanksgiving for the believers at Thessalonica. And his confidence is in the faithfulness of the Lord. Moffat translates it like this, we rely upon you in the Lord. So Paul is putting his trust in the Lord to do works in their heart, to do the right thing. And he's expecting the Lord to do the work in their lives to respond to the commands God has given them. Ultimately, that is what every person must do uh, with integrity. Uh, We're not to manipulate circumstances, but we're to trust the Holy Spirit at work in other people's lives. I remember one flight, uh, I went to the Southern Baptist Convention, and I remember I was flying home, and it was so bumpy. You know, turbulence had hit. And we were in a pretty small plane, and it was affected by the storm scattered over the southern part of the country at the time I remember looking out the window and for a a, a brief moment I thought you know if God wanted men to fly he would have given them wings perhaps you've witnessed to somebody or ministered to somebody or shared the gospel with somebody and and found the way to be bumpy or turbulent or brutal at times and you've wondered you know is it worth it why am I doing this Well, here are some reasons to join Paul in thanking Jesus Christ, our Lord, for allowing us to serve him and serve others. First of all, look around at those who are faithfully serving him. In my years of ministry, I've come to the conclusion that the people I most respect wholeheartedly serve the Lord. There's an air of humble confidence to people who have walked with the Lord for years, serving Him in ministry, who speak about how the Lord is working in their life today, currently, not just something He did years ago, who who have studied the Bible thoroughly. They don't know everything, obviously, none of us do, but they've been in their quiet times. They've been praying, they've been reading the Scriptures, they've been memorizing Scripture. On their way to the promised land, the children of Israel set up camp numerous times in their 40-year pilgrimage. Although the location changed, the layout was always the same. The tabernacle wherein dwelt the Shekinah glory of God was always set up in the middle of the camp. Guess who got to set up camp closest to the innermost circle, to the tabernacle, closest to the glory of God? It was those who were involved in service to the Lord. The Levites, according to Numbers 2.17. I found that to be true even today. Those who are involved in serving the Lord are sharing the word, get to camp closest to the place of his glory. There's a richness and a depth about serving God and honoring him and getting close to him. Secondly, look within at how God will bless you. 
Jesus said in Matthew 7, 2, Give and it shall be given unto you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For with the same measure that you mete out, it will be measured to you again. In other words, to the degree that you give out, you get back. And as I look within, I know this to be true. The same is true for whatever you do for others in Jesus' name. When you do something for someone else, it may be as simple as mowing the lawn of somebody who had surgery and can't get out there and cut their own grass. It may be baking a cake for a needy family. It may be giving financial support to somebody in need. You receive as much joy as the recipient, don't you? If you've ever done that, you know you receive a blessing as much as you are a blessing to them. I'm so thankful the Lord has called all of us to be ministers. Not ordained ministers, but ministers to serve Him and to serve others, according to John 15, 16. Because I realize how empty our lives are when we're not caring for others. We're interested in the the, the beautiful in the world today, the strong, the successful, because they have something to offer us. We want to be like them, associated with them, to have what they have. But should our desires shift and we begin to search out spiritual riches? Well, that's a different story altogether. That's a different approach. Pursuing company with the rich and powerful will do nothing for gaining heaven's rewards. To prosper spiritually, we've got to feed the poor, befriend the outcast, support the needy, minister grace to those who need it. Thirdly, look down at the strategies of the evil one. When I look down at the strategies of the evil one, I'm thankful I'm serving God and not the devil. Listen to Deuteronomy 25, 17 and 18. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. So on their way to the promised land, the enemies of the Israelites picked off those who were lagging behind. Same true for us today. The most dangerous place to be in our Christian experience is in the back of the pack. That's where the enemy attacks. Those who say, well, I'll make it to church if it's convenient. I'll come if I don't have something else to do. I'll have devotions if I wake up early enough. I'll come to church if my children don't have some sporting event to keep us away. Those are the folks who get harmed the most, the quickest. Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your enemy goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. And he heads for the easy targets. You know, I'm thankful I'm a pastor. I'm thankful I'm in ministry because I'm here almost every day of the week. (laughs) I'm in church a lot. When the Lord saved me, he must have said, you know, Carl, you're a bit unpredictable. How can I keep you in church? Well, I know I'll make you a pastor, okay? You'll go a lot that way. But I think the Lord wants every one of us to be involved in ministry to some capacity so we cannot take the option of saying, I'm not going to come to church Sunday morning. Listen, if you're being counted on in the nursery or you're being counted on as a leader in a youth group or a life group or uh, working with the praise team or any other area of leadership, you need to be here. No other area of responsibility do we treat as lightly or as indifferently or as apathetic as we do leadership in the church. Boy, that's sad. Here's another thing. The longer you miss, the harder it is to get back. 
You know, if you're, if, you're, if you're in a life group, you know how special that is. If you're helping with youth ministry, if you're serving in the children's ministry, if you're handing out bulletins, it's, it's really for your own good as much as it is for the people that you're serving. It keeps you uh, accountable. Number four, look back at memories of people who changed your life. For me, I remember a guy named Ray who gave, who, who gave me rides to a backyard Bible club community house when I was in the fourth grade. What I remember about him is he was a janitor in the local school. He didn't have much, but whatever he had, he was willing to use. His car wasn't fancy, but he was willing to, to take me to Kids Bible Clubhouse. He was humble, kind, and he exuded the Spirit of Christ wherever he went. One night, years later, my parents and I were eating in a restaurant. I was in college, and uh, I saw him. And I went up to him, and I said, I don't know if you remember me or not, but I'm Carl. You used to give me rides. He said, I remember you, Carl. And, and we had a conversation. And I said, um, you know what, Ray? I said, I had the chance to, to become a pastor because of your investment in my life. And I had a chance to thank him. And we don't always get that chance. He meant so much to me, and, and his influence still continues to this day. As I look back, I have many memories of, of people just like Ray who changed my life, and I know you do too. Think back to those um, godly pastors, faithful Sunday school teachers, on-fire Christian friends, deacons, children leaders, boys, RA leaders, GA leaders, who re- helped you realize what it meant to live your life as a Christian. Number five, look ahead to the joys that await in heaven. As I look ahead to heaven, I'm thankful I'm a believer that I can join with those who are gathered around the throne and and singing and and laying our crowns at the feet of Jesus, Revelation 4.10. Who gave us our our ability to do that? Who, Who gave you your ability to do what you do today? Jesus. James 1, 17 says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. So nobody can accept any responsibility or credit for any of the talents they have other than what God has given them. John 3, 27. So here's the way it works. God gives us abilities. He opens the door for us to use those abilities for him. And then he empowers us to serve others with those abilities. That's pretty amazing. Think about this for a moment. If you were about to deposit your life's savings in a bank and the bank manager, whispered, bank manager whispered to you, don't do it. We're shutting our doors tomorrow and claiming all the deposits. You're never going to get your money out. Would you say, oh, well, I'll just take my chances. I'm depositing my money anyway. No, you wouldn't do that. That'd be foolish, right? That wouldn't be very wise. Of course not. Yet the master says to us, put your treasures in heaven. Don't put it on earth. Because if you put it in earth, you're never going to get it out. Luke 12, 33. What do people say oftentimes? Oh, well, I'll take my chances. Look ahead. Be wise. Invest your life in things that are eternal. You'll never regret it. Number six, look outwardly to those hurting and ready to receive Jesus. In John 4, 35, Jesus said, lift up your eyes. Look out. The fields are white with harvest. I think if all of us were to take the time to just think in our minds, looking out at people we know. We could think of people right now who need Jesus. People who are lost that need to hear about Jesus, who need to come to Jesus. People who are believers, 
who are just hurting right now. I read an account of a party at a civic center pool attended by 200 lifeguards and their friends. They were celebrating the fact that for the first time in city history, no one had drowned the entire season in any of the city's lakes or public pools. It was not until almost everyone had gone home that a man was discovered dead at the bottom of the pool. In the midst of 200 lifeguards enjoying their success, a man had drowned. No one knew it until the party was over. I'm afraid to say sometimes we come together, we celebrate our salvation, we celebrate God's goodness to us, but we also have to understand that there are people around us who are drowning spiritually in sin, depression, anxiety, confusion, discouragement, lostness. As wonderful as it would be to be a doctor who helped people physically or a philanthropist who would help people financially, there's nothing like helping people spiritually. Helping them come to Christ and sharing the gospel with them. So think about a neighbor or a friend or a child or a relative, a co-worker, an associate. Someone who's ripe for harvest and be ready to share Jesus. Final thing, look up to the cross. I'm glad I serve the Lord and I serve others when I look to Jesus on the cross dying for me. Paul said, it's the love of Christ which constrains me. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. It's Jesus' love that leads us to share with others. It's Jesus' love that helps us to endure a messy relationship with one or two people as we're trying to serve them. So we look within, we look down, we look around, we look ahead, we, we look up. And that's really the most important place to look. During a trip to Portland, Oregon... Noted atheist Christopher Hitchens, who has since passed away, laid down some seriously good theology. Most people recognize Hitchens as the author of the best-selling book, God is Not Great, While Religion Poisons Everything. Since the book's publication in 2007, Hitchens toured the country debating a series of religious leaders, including some well-known evangelical thinkers. In Portland, he was interviewed by Unitarian minister Marilyn Sewell. The entire transcript of the interview is online. The following exchange took place near the start of the interview. Listen to this. Sewell, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Hitchens. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Sewell wanted no part of the discussion. Her next words were, let me go someplace else with this conversation. (laughs) This little snippet demonstrates an important part about God talk. You can call yourself anything you like. But if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead for our justification, you are not in any meaningful sense a real Christian. I mean, it's so ironic. An outspoken atheist grasps the central tenet of Christianity better than many Christians do today. But what you believe about Jesus and the cross and the resurrection really does make a difference.
Romans 10, 9, if you declare with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know, if I had to be honest tonight, I'd have to just admit, I often find myself hoping for heaven too soon. (laughs) Our time in heaven, it's coming for sure. But when it does, we will experience more comfort and joy than we can possibly imagine. But listen, we're not there yet. Instead, we live in a fallen and a hurting and a lost world, one in desperate need of God's redemptive love, and there's a lot of work to do. That's why Jesus calls us not to a life of comfort, but to take up our cross, to make our own sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. So now's the time to work. Now's the time to suffer. Now's the time not to continue just imagining how great heaven's going to be. But let's work and serve and pray until Jesus returns. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfarechurch.org. Blessings.